You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we're talking about the resurrection. This is, you know, somewhat of, of an important doctrine to Christians and such. And we make the case with evidence. And sometimes it can be asked, what people really specialize in evidence? Well, lawyers are one such group. How would the case of the resurrection stand up in a court of law? My guest today, in fact, has written a book on that, looking at leading lawyers in history in their case of the resurrection. His name is Ross Clifford. He's a principal of Morning Theological College, Sydney. Prior to entering the Baptist ministry, he practices a solicitor and barrister. He was the pastor of two Sydney Baptist churches, each of which grew dramatically. He is the author of nine books, including The Cross is Not Enough, Living as Witnesses to the Resurrection. He co-pioneered outreaches into Mind, Body, Spirit festivals. He is a former president of the Baptist Union of Australia, former encouragement president of the NSW Council of Churches, president of the Asia Pacific Baptist Federation, recent chair of the Australian Lausanne Committee, and is a vice president of the Baptist World Alliance for 2010 to 2015. In the Queen's Birthday Honours List of 2010, he was made a member of the Order of Australia. He is married to Beverly and they have two children. His passions include legal crime novels, cricket, and all brands of football. So, uh, Ross, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you, Nick. Yeah, I understand technically it's Dr. Clifford, but you've told me that Aussies don't really care for formalities and such. No, we're very informal, uh, Nick. I actually did my doctorate on mm. the legal apologetic of mm-hmm. um, I looked at a man called John Warwick Montgomery mm-hmm. and his legal apologetic, and I valued that critically. Okay. Well, if um, my audience doesn't know who you are, tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, look, I was practicing law uh, in Australia and uh, in the outback as well in a place called the Northern Territory. And mm-hmm. as I was training for Baptist ministry, I, I left the law, I came back to train in seminary. I started to get some doubts, uh, Nick, which mm-hmm. is not uncommon uh, when you're training at seminary. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my New Testament introduction and the like, and I'm, I'm starting to get some doubts about who Jesus is, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. I'm not getting doubts about God, but who Jesus is. And I came by providence across a book called The Law Above the Law, written by Montgomery. Uh, and in that book, he has... Uh, an appendix by a great lawyer, American lawyer, called Simon Greenleaf of yesterday. Mm -hmm. I read that appendix. I read Montgomery's book. It was the defense for the resurrection on legal principles, as was Greenleaf's. Went back and read my Gospels, and I re-entered the apostolic faith. My doubt left. And Mm -hmm. apologetics has always been with me. You know, the defense of the faith or understanding the faith Mm -hmm. and the marketplace of ideas have always been with me Mm -hmm. since that time. 
And I went on and did a master's under Montgomery in America at Simon Greenleaf School of Law, which is now Trinity Law School, uh, looking at lawyers who had, um, you know, examined the evidence for the resurrection. And the book you mentioned, Leading Lawyers' Case for the Resurrection, is a popularisation of that thesis. You know, my humorous side is thinking there could be a lot of people saying, wow, we didn't know lawyers could be Christians. Is that really possible? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's some great lawyer jokes out there, Nick, and I'm sure you're aware of them. Uh, the truth is, uh, you know, lawyers are as fallen as anybody else. But the truth is, lawyers have experience at looking at documents, examining documents, knowing what is good evidence and knowing what isn't good evidence. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that the number of the lawyers I looked at were like me. I mean, they were critical. They came into the kingdom kicking and screaming. Mm-hmm. But when they looked at the evidence of the resurrection, there's nothing else that they could do mm-hmm. but say, he is risen. Mm-hmm. Now, let's start talking about some of this evidence. Now, one of the things that's commonly said if you do any internet interaction with skeptics nowadays is, these cases are built on hearsay. Hearsay is not allowed in a court of law, but resurrection would not pass. Yeah, well... I understand that objection. Mm -hmm. Simply say, when you're dealing with documents and the case for the resurrection is based on documents, uh, technically there is in most uh, countries exceptions to what is called the hearsay rule. Mm -hmm. And the the, the, the exceptions to that are based on good, reliable documents Mm -hmm. where you can show there's good provenance. You can show that they have good history, good uh, tradition. You can you can take the document back to the original author and mm. you can show that who is writing the document uh, witness the events that took place or is close to witnessing the events that took place. Mm-hmm. And you establish those kind of principles, uh, Nick, mm. and, and, you, and it's no longer the hearsay exemption is going to apply. Mm. Uh, the courts are simply going to accept the documents because they're good documents, they're good evidence. Mm. They're the best evidence you've actually got. Um, and, in fact, really the only evidence you actually have. So mm. the exception to hearsay uh, rule applies. You've also got to remember that uh, some of the uh, statements in the in the Gospels and in, say, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 by the Apostle Paul is what we call first-hand hearsay. Mm. And that is people witnessing, you know, exactly what they saw themselves. Paul saw the resurrected Christ. Uh, Matthew records what he saw. Uh, He saw the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, um, Mark writing for the Apostle Peter, exactly the same. Same with the Apostle John. And that first-hand hearsay, I mean, they're writing what they saw, and it's only hearsay because it's in a document. I'm not getting too technical. That's acceptable in any court of law. Mm -hmm. See, so you've got two things happening. You, you, you've got good documents and, and, and showing good history and you can uh, take them back to the authors. And because of that, uh, the good documents are going to be acceptable in any court of law, no matter what he says on, you know, what, no matter what people say about his say. Mm-hmm. But even if you want to still push further, you're going to be able to say, well, you've got people who are witnesses to the actual events recording what they saw and that's called first-hand hearsay. It's only hearsay because it's written. You can't call them into court of law, but they are still eyewitnesses of the event. So it it basically crumbles. Yeah. So, I mean, 
if we weren't talking about the resurrection of Jesus, let's say we're talking about, say, the assassination of Julius Caesar, instead, we yes. could use ancient documents about the events surrounding the assassination of Caesar in the court of law, and it'd be perfectly acceptable. Exactly, because one, you've got just good God documents, and they're good historical documents that uh, that are acceptable. And by the way, the documents we're using for that uh, event that you've described would be nowhere near as reliable and as historically justifiable as the Gospels or, say, 1 Corinthians 15. Nowhere near as reliable. And you've got something more, which you don't have in the Caesar case. You've got people who have actually uh, written the documents, who have observed the events themselves. Mm-hmm. So, mate, uh, if you're not going to accept the Gospels as reliable historical evidence of what took place, you're going to have nothing from antiquity, absolutely nothing you can investigate. Okay, well, let's push back then on this um, with the, the Gospels and such being good, reliable documents. I mean, one of the first objections we could get is, yeah, but these were documents written decades after the fact, and they weren't even written by eyewitnesses. Well... One thing to remember, mate, I'm in my 60s now, Mm -hmm. and what I find absolutely extraordinary is I can remember vividly events that took place 40 years ago when I was playing a game of cricket Mm -hmm. or when I was at a wedding Mm -hmm. or some event that took place in my life when I was at school Mm -hmm. 40 or 50 years ago. And I share that with my friends who, you know, go back to that sort of time with me, and they, they remember the same event. Mm-hmm. So I can revent, I can remember personally, uh, you know, incidental stuff that took place 40 or 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, mate, imagine it was a resurrection. Imagine it was someone back from the dead. I mean, how vivid that memory would still remain. So, I mean, again, that sort of falls over. All of us can remember events that go back 10, 15, 20 or 30 years. And yeah. some of these events are not life-changing. Mm-hmm. So I think we've got to put that aside. And I document in my book a number of cases where courts have uh, uh, comfortably accepted uh, witness statements and witnesses remembering events that took place 30, 40, 50 years ago, which were dramatic uh, events in, in big cases. So, uh, you know, that just doesn't apply. Yeah. And here in America, I think one of the biggest events in recent history that applies as a memorable event and I'm sure to some degree it was remembered also in Australia, was when we had what took place on 9-11 here in 2001. Yeah. And I can remember, I mean, I didn't see him the first tower hit, but it was a Tuesday morning, and we were in chapel that day at my Bible college, and one of the professors came in before the morning sermon and said, we need to be in prayer that uh, the, uh, one of the, the towers, one of the twin towers has just gotten hit by an airplane. Now, you hear that first, you think, gosh, what was going on? That pilot, he must have been drunk out of his mind or something. And I think most of us went, just went about and we heard the sermon. And then after a sermon, Professor comes in again and says, the other tower's been hit. And by then, I think we all knew, this is not a coincidence at this point. And... There have been some people who have done these studies where they said, where, you know, we can show if this or that eyewitness testimony isn't reliable because we can talk to people about what happened that day and they'll tell us. And then we'll go talk to those same people later on 
and their accurate information about it will be worse, actually. Their memories will deteriorate and such about it. But what I've wondered about this when I've seen this is they usually say they're talking to people like college students and such. And I'd like to say, what would happen if we talked to people who, say, lost a loved one on that yes. day in the towers or escaped the towers themselves or were part of the first responders team getting people in and out? Do you think their memories of that event could be better off overall? Yeah, look, I, I think it's really interesting, Nick. Uh, <laughs> what we need to remember is the case of the resurrection centers mm. on one central fact, yeah. and that is the tomb is empty. Mm. Now, even if we concede people's memories might become a little blurred or they mm. might put the you know, surrounding events in, 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 in a different order, you know, 30 or 40 years later, even if we concede that, we're not going to concede that the uh, Twin Tower event didn't take place right. as you described it. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and so that's the key point mm-hmm. that I can still remember exactly what I was doing uh, at that particular time. I was watching TV here in Australia where uh, the TV uh, mm-hmm. of, um, show I was watching uh, mm-hmm. was interrupted to tell us, go to another channel if you wanted to and, and watch this thing unfolding. I mean, all of us in Australia and I'm sure in America uh, still talk about can you remember what you were doing when you got the uh, information that uh, John F. Kennedy had been assassinated? Yeah. Now, all of us say, yeah, I can remember what I was doing. And why we might get a little bit blurred or uncertain about some of the surrounding events, and I'm not admitting, by the way, that did happen with the Gospels. Yep. While we might get a little bit blurred about the surrounding events, we're not blurred about the fact that John F. Kennedy was assassinated or mm. the Twin Tower event took place or yeah. Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, yeah. the central fact remains strong in your memory and in everybody's memory, and that does not get mistaken. Yeah. And, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, mate, doesn't take that away. Yeah. And do you think also that's the case that talking with college students who had no real direct involvement with the event is completely different from talking to people like first responders and such, those who actually were directly affected by these events. Because these people, I mean, it defines their lives to an extent. They're they're going to be telling the story over and over, so they're quite likely to have a better account of what happened. College students won't do that. They just go by what they see on the news unless they were somehow directly involved. Yes. Yes, look, I couldn't agree more. And those who are directly involved will tell the story, uh, will tell the story to each other, will tell the story to uh, family members. And, of course, we know society of those days, Jesus' days, was an oral society in many ways. And they kept on repeating the story. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when you look at what the Apostle Paul wrote, and, Nick, I think this is really key. The book of 1 Corinthians is, is really important. And... Can I just take a moment to explain to people why? Absolutely. The book of 1 Corinthians, many people feel, was the first written book of the New Testament. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, gives us uh, Paul's understanding and of the resurrection of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus. There is not a sceptical critic I know out there who doubts that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. I, I don't know anyone who doubts Paul's authorship of 1 Corinthians. Mm-hmm. I don't know any scholar out there, a believer or critic, who doubts 
that 1 Corinthians is not as Paul wrote it. As you read it today, it is as Paul wrote it. So everyone believes you're reading Paul as he wrote it, believer or unbeliever. The only exception I can think to that actually is Robert Price, and he's a Jesus mythicist who thinks the creed or information is an interpolation. So... Yeah, I mean, you're dealing with the real extreme. Yes. I could put that on the table anywhere and basically get a nod to it. That's why the critics today are really taking on 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Mm -hmm. because because it's authorship. uh, As you read it, as it was written, um, its early date is basically a given. Mm -hmm. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I have received information which I've handed on to you. So the story is being told as we described, but he's also giving his first-hand witness experience. I, you know, I mm. saw the resurrected Christ. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so Nick, here you've got somebody um, who's also recording this message of the resurrection of Jesus in a document that's basically beyond dispute, certainly passes a test of uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. As to its authorship, as to its reading, as you saw, as it was written, uh, recording a resurrection experience of which mm-hmm. he was a witness to, and accounting that these are the testimonies of 500 people, including people close to the event, including the disciples, the skeptics, the best witness list you could ever have in a criminal court hearing. Here they are, here's their names, here's the people. They're, the majority of them are still alive. It's like I'm giving you a, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you an app which you can go and check out their names and addresses and contact them for yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just unbelievable stuff. Yeah, but you know, sometimes some of our friends were tell us that you know you got eyewitness testimony. Okay, but don't we know that in a court of law, eyewitness testimony is the least reliable testimony? <sighs> Ah, and that's a great point because I spend a fair bit of time on this in my doctorate, Nick, uh, and I I know that for the truth as a witness, as as a lawyer, sorry, that eyewitness testimony can be the most unreliable testimony you can have Mm -hmm. Uh, because, you know, we do get confused. We, you know, we we don't identify across race and colour well Mm -hmm. and because an event can be, you know, dramatic, you know, it, it, it can, you know, hinder our, our recollection of what took place. Everything around about it can be confusing. So, yes, I agree that eyewitness testimony of an event can be unreliable evidence. But, Nick, you know the most reliable eyewitness testimony there is? And this uh, eyewitness testimony is the best evidence you can get, and that's the eyewitness uh, testimony of a prior acquaintance. So, Nick, if someone runs into your house and does a robbery and runs out and you've never seen them before, then your eyewitness identification of them, you know, can be questionable. Right. But if it's your father who runs into the house and steals something and runs out, or if it's your best friend who runs in the house and steals mm-hmm. something and runs out, or if it's your, you know, your next-door neighbour who does that, then your eyewitness identification of them, mate, that is just top best evidence. Mm. So if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the extraordinary thing is I believe God knows us 
knows our capacity to doubt and to question. And what witness list does he give you? Mm -hmm. In 1 Corinthians 15, it's all set out. He gives you people who knew Jesus well before his death and resurrection, disciples who walked with him for three years. Mm -hmm. These guys could not be confused. He gives you the best evidence possible. And just in case you think they might be all biased, so then he gives you witnesses who don't know him as, at all as well, including the Apostle Paul. And just in case you think, well, I'm not quite sure about the quality of evidence he gives you some who were believers and he gives you some who were doubters before the resurrection. I mean, Peter was a doubter. Mm -hmm. uh, James, his brother, was a doubter. Yeah. I mean, and he throws them in as, as well. So what, what witness list have you got? People who knew him, people who didn't know him, people who are believers, people who are doubters. My gosh, mate, if you're a criminal lawyer, you'd give your right arm for the witness list mm -hmm. like that. He's covered every possible contingency. And on top of that, he's given you women. Look at uh, Mark 15, 40, Mark 15, verse 47, and uh, Mark 16, verse 2. He, Mark, you know, writing for Peter, gives you the women who saw his death, burial, and resurrection. Women normally couldn't give evidence in a court of law in those days. And as Jewish historians say, this is a ring of truth. You wouldn't invent a story with the women being prime witness identifies to death, burial, and resurrection, the chain event. So he's put those in as well. So he's given you people who knew him, people who didn't know him, people who are skeptics, people who are believers. He's given you 500. He's given you 12 people who walk with him during his life. He's given you women as a ring of truth because you wouldn't invent a story with women. Mate, it's just overwhelming and it answers every objection you could think about with respect to an eyewitness. We're going to talk about some of those objections soon, but I can remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I've got Ross Clifford here. We're talking about leading lawyers' case for resurrection. Can you make a legal case that Jesus rose from the dead? If you're here next week, we're going to be talking about an objection, in fact, and one completely different, but one that we all get hit with from time to time. Clay Jones is going to be my guest next week, and we're going to be talking about his book, Why Does God Allow Evil? So we'll be talking about the problem of evil next week. For now, let's get back to uh, to Ross here, talking about the, uh, the resurrection here. So, well, I mean, Paul is a great witness there, yeah, and such. But when we get to the Gospels, I mean, we don't even know who wrote the Gospels, don't we? I mean, they're anonymous. Would we accept anonymous sources in a court of law? Yeah, well, look, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, Basically, what I do in the leading lawyer's case for the resurrection, though, Nick, is I take a traditional view and and I seek to show that the traditional understanding of the authorship of the Gospels has mm. really strong evidence for it. 
Mm-hmm. Now, as a lawyer, I'm not trying to prove something absolutely. I can never prove something absolutely as a lawyer. I mean, fact, Nick, can only be proved, uh, you know, to 99% or beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, you can't prove any fact 100% um, because, you know, that's what facts are. And so I'm saying that in my mind, beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, certainly on the balance of evidence, Mm -hmm. uh, the traditional case for authorship is very strong, that Mm -hmm. uh, Matthew, the disciple, wrote Matthew, John, the disciple, wrote John, uh, Mark, is writing uh, on the basis of what uh, Peter uh, was giving to him. He's a basic scribe. And, of Mm -hmm. course, we, uh, Dr. Luke is writing and, you know, uh, as someone after the event, but collecting the evidence and collecting it well. Mm -hmm. So I make that case, Nick, and it's an historical case. And, Nick, you've got to remember that as a lawyer, you've got to look at internal evidence as well for who wrote the Gospels. Mm -hmm. It's important to look for internal evidence. And so, for example, when you come to, you know, Matthew's Gospel, you've got extraordinary internal evidence. Like Matthew is the one who records... Uh, the event with Jesus paying tax. Mm-hmm. And then we know from from historical accounts that Matthew was a tax collector. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I can go, I, we have a saying in Australia, Nick, what's the pub test? What's the hotel test? What's the pub test? What would a guy drinking a beer think about that kind of argument? Mm. Now, if someone out there is a great critic saying, oh, Matthew didn't write Matthew, you know, there's no evidence for that. And, I, you know, I'm in the pub having a beer with somebody and I said, and he said, well, what do you reckon, Ross? Did Matthew write Matthew? If that conversation came mm. up, I said, well, mate, all the early evidence points to it. The early historian said that Matthew wrote it. it it's, it's got the ring of an eyewitness uh, as, as you read the account. And by the way, mate, we know Matthew was a tax collector and that particular gospel records Jesus paying tax. The guy I'm having a beer with would say to me, Ross, that sounds pretty good to me, mate. That sounds pretty good to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mate, I can do that with all the gospels. I've done the pub test, I've what we call the pub test, mate. Mm-hmm. On the, the person on the street, that sounds pretty good to them, mm-hmm. that the internal evidence speaks uh, as you read John's Gospel, it's clearly written by someone close to Jesus. He calls it, you know, uh, the, the, the writer talks about uh, being the one who Jesus loved, etc. Right. Clearly one of the inner circle. You've only got to look at the inner circle. It's one of three. Uh, John is really the only one who can qualify, who will be still alive to write that Gospel. He's close. He's one of the inner three. Early tradition says it's John. Mate, you know, you can... You can, you can read what someone says 2,000 years after the event and says, oh, that person couldn't have written it or it came out of another school. Or you can go back to those who are closest to the event, hear what they said about who wrote it, look at the internal evidence as a lawyer, because that's what lawyers do, and say, my gosh, that passes the hotel test, the pub test, or my gosh, that's, you know, that's where the balance of evidence lies. Mm-hmm. And that's all I'm doing. Uh, you know, I can't prove something 100%, but I can tell you, you've got a pretty good case that the Gospels were written by the traditional authors. In fact, the case is stronger than them not being written by the traditional authors. But even if they weren't, mate, there's still good historical documents that the Church affirmed as telling the story 
the early disciples, the early believers of Jesus said they are telling the story as it was. They're clearly people close to the event. Um, they're, 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 they're clearly written with, uh, as we know now, they're clearly written in a form which is a reasonably contemporary history, bio-history of those days. Mm. Um, they're early. They've got good provenance. They've got good governance. We can trace their origins. Mate, even if I can't establish traditional authorship, I'm going to get courts of law reading them as the most reliable documents we have of what took place at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, you know, something else about the Gospels, I mean, especially like if you look at the resurrection accounts, they all contradict and disagree with each other so much. I mean, how could you have a reliable story when the witnesses can't seem to get their story straight? Yeah, look, that's another good question. And, Nick, that really hounded me. Mm-hmm. You know, when I said I was sceptical, when mm-hmm. I started out at, at seminary, mm-hmm. and that was one of the things. Are there contradictions in the gospel accounts? And mm-hmm. that really started to concern me. And one of the uh, best-known sceptics in Australia is a woman called Barbara Theory. And mm-hmm. Barbara Theory wrote a book called Jesus the Man, which went global mm-hmm. um, around the world as a critical examination of the Gospels. And, uh, and Barbara Theory uh, got caught again with, are there contradictions in the resurrection accounts? And I can remember, because I did postgrad study with Barbara at Sydney University, and I can remember sitting for an hour with Barbara saying, and her saying to me, but Ross, one gospel account has two angels, another gospel account has one angel. Mm-hmm. And I realised, although she was one of the world's leading critical scholars, it was a little contradiction mm-hmm. in the gospels about the number of angels that was really causing her great mental distress on the resurrection of Jesus. Nick, I've got to say honestly mm-hmm. two things. Well, three things. Let me say three things. Okay. One is, one is that they don't disagree on the central event. Mm-hmm. For that, as a lawyer, is absolutely key. They don't disagree on the central event, and that is the tomb was empty and he arose, and mm-hmm. they were witnesses to the risen Christ. That central event, no contradiction. No contradiction at all. And it's that central event the court of law is going to really look at. That's the thing that the court's going to be really concerned about. Secondly, they do tell their stories differently. For example, John focuses in on a persons and, and women and, and Peter. He tells it more from characters. I mean, others are going to tell the story more from the events that took place. So they do differ in how they tell the story, particularly John from Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, but for Matthew, Mark and Luke. But having said that, as a lawyer, if you've got eyewitness accounts of an event, you expect the stories to, to have little you know, nuances and little, little differences on the events that they pick up. Mm-hmm. And so if they all said it exactly the same, you would have a concern that they've rehearsed their story to invent a lie. Collusion. So, yeah, that's right. So you do expect, you know, that there are differences in how the story is told. Mm-hmm. But thirdly, you do need to be aware if those differences in the, how the story are, are told are major differences and contradictions, you do have a difficulty even if they stick to the major event. Mm-hmm. And you have, you have a difficulty which a lawyer would pick up in a court of law and try to see if the witnesses are inconsistent and if they can undermine the case. Mm-hmm. But, Nick, I've got to tell you, 
I've actually sat down and looked at those so-called contradictions mm-hmm. and I have looked at if they can be harmonised and they can be. Mm-hmm. They can be. I've done it myself. Start with John's Gospel, see that John records four or five events that take place, the women go to the tomb, women back to the disciples, women back to the tomb, then go and look at the synoptics and see that Matthew, Mark, Luke pick up various aspects of that story. And if you look at that and you look at honestly, uh, you know, you can't necessarily put everything together, but any major contradiction is basically caught up in the fact that some person's emphasising one thing, someone else is emphasising something else, but they don't actually they don't actually contradict each other. So as I said to Barbara Thierry, Barbara, if there's two angels, there can be one angel. I mean, I can tell a story that, uh, you know, I went to a football match with John and talk about the conversation I had with John. I can tell the story the next day that I went to a football match with John and Peter. Mm-hmm. And people say, it's a contradiction, contradiction. First time you talked about John, but now there's John and Peter. Yeah, no. When I was telling the story the first time, I, I was just emphasising John and my relationship with John and my conversation with John. doesn't mean that Peter wasn't there. When I told the story the next time, I was telling the story, including Peter. Mm. That's not a contradiction. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, One analogy I often use is I'm married, so I have two sets of parents, mine and my wife's. My father-in-law is very much into apologetics, and my parents aren't. But they're all Christians. So let's say Jehovah's Witnesses come and knock on my door, and we have a good talk. I'll call and I'll tell my parents what happened. I'll give a good basic summary. When I call my in-laws... I'm going to get much more in-depth because they understand the subject matter a whole lot more. Are those stories contradictory? No, I'm just telling different stories to different people based on the understanding and the points I want to emphasize to those people. Yeah, and, and, and Nick, mm-hmm. if people knew you yep. and a major event took place and they spoke to your parents and parents-in-law yeah. and they told the story of the conversation exactly the same way, yep. they, people knew you would start to doubt that this had taken place because I'd say, well, Nick, when he talks to his parents and parents-in-law, shares different things, but here they're saying exactly the same. Yeah. I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. So a lawyer expects differences in storytelling, Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, what he wants to know is, or she wants to know, is that the major event is firm, There's no difference in the major event. So, for example, a witness who's been hit by a motor vehicle, you know, it's got to be a motor vehicle. If it turns out to be a truck in one witness's mind and a car, motor car in another witness's mind, you're in big strife, mate. Yep. But if one witness says it's a motor vehicle and the driver was wearing a yellow shirt, what about the passenger? Oh, can't tell you whether it's a passenger or not. And the other one tells you the driver had a yellow shirt, but there was a passenger, you know, with a with a black shirt or whatever. Someone's going to say, oh, there you go, there's an inconsistency. No, the first witness was just focused on the driver. I mean, yeah. does that make sense? I mean, it's yeah. not an inconsistency if they tell the story that, that way at all. In fact, yeah. that's what a lawyer would expect to see. Mm-hmm. But, my gosh, 
if the driver was a woman with a hat on and a scarf and not a guy with a yellow shirt, mate, you have problems. Mm-hmm. Do you have a place online or in a book where people can see this reconciliation you've written out if you have a, a resurrection account? Uh, look, I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically uh, not only in leading lawyers, I look at it a little bit, uh, but I also do that in uh, my doctoral study on Montgomery, which is John Warwick Montgomery's uh, legal apologetic, a case for all seasons. I talk about that. Okay. But I, I, I do it in my classes. I want to be honest with my students. So when, when we go through, because I teach theology as well as mm-hmm. apologetics, so I'm, I'm a president of a seminary, if you like, but I, I insist on teaching as well, limited number of classes, but I do. And I say to my students, when, when we're dealing Christology and we come to the resurrection of Jesus, I say, I want you to take half an hour now, read through the four different resurrection accounts in the Gospels, and I want you to seek to identify what might be perceived as uh, contradictions. Mm-hmm. And then we write them down on, 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 on a whiteboard or whatever. And normally we get to something perceived to be 17 to 21, and they're the classical contradictions. Is there one angel, two angels, or whatever? And then I ask them, can you naturally harmonise these? Or if you can't harmonise them, are they really contradictions or different storytelling? Mm-hmm. Then we might get down to one or two or three that might seem to be difficult. But I say, well, if you're only down to one, two or three, and you actually don't have the witness before you, and the rest of the evidence is very, very strong, and it's all centred on the major event, then those one, two or three that you might have a concern about or not quite sure about, Mm-hmm. You know, they can never override the rest of the evidence because clearly the evidence is strong, it's non-contradictory, it focuses on the uh, on the major event, gets that all together in the four different accounts as, as, as happening. And, and sometimes even a court of law, you've just got to say, well, look, you know, we don't know the answer to that. Maybe in time we will get the answer to that mm-hmm. uh, simply because we just don't have enough collection of evidence to explain those events. And yeah. I do that. There is a book, though, Nick, that does this really well. Uh-huh. And it's Wenin's, Wenin's book called The Easter Enigma. Uh-huh. Easter Enigma. And it goes through all the events of Easter, all the characters, and harmonizes them naturally. And by mm-hmm. the way, Simon Greenleaf does that as well. And he was the lawyer that was in the, uh, that Montgomery um, uh, had in his book, The Law Above the Law, as an appendix. Mm-hmm. And uh, Simon Greenleaf is a, uh, although he's a lawyer of two or 300 years ago, he's still a great law on evidence. And you can get Simon Greenleaf's uh, uh, testimony. And of the harmony. evangelist. Right. And he, do, he does it as well as anybody. Okay. Uh, but, but Wenham is a great book, The mm-hmm. Easter Nick. Get hold of it. Read it every Easter. I read it every Easter. It's just lovely, uh, natural, not forced. Uh, bringing together all of the characters, the events uh, through the gospel.
I like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to a Deeper Waters podcast. We got Ross Clifford on talking about a legal case for resurrection. And if you want to help us, gosh, I sure would appreciate it. Please go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a link on the side, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now you click on that and you get taken to Risen Jesus, the ministry of Mike and Debbie Lacona. You're at the right place. Those are my in-laws there. And if you make a donation to them, they uh, they will hold it and you just get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, or Mike or Debbie and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They will make sure we get your donation. It will be tax deductible. And uh, you can also buy books I've either written or co-written online. Defining Inerrancy, Groundless, um, God and Natural Disasters, Christian Answers, or Rich Generations, Questions, you others. And, of course, a Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, the one I've written myself. And also, guys, I, I want to stress you again. Women in your life like jewelry. So what you can do is you can go to the jewelry store we have here and make a purchase there. And when you do, you can get in touch with me if you need some help doing it. When you do, let me know. Whatever you bought for that lady in your life, 25% of it will go to Deeper Barters. So guys, I mean, the way I see it, you can buy something to make up for that big screw up that I know you recently did with that lady in your life. Or you can buy something to make up for that big screw up that I know you're going to make with that lady in your life. And if you can't do any of these, please consider going on iTunes and leaving a positive review for the Deeper Waters podcast. I'd really appreciate it. Now, uh, Ross, do you have an organization you'd like to see people donate to? Yeah, look, if you go to the website, um, uh, just Google my seminary, which is Mauling College, M-O-R-L-I-N-G, mm-hmm. Mauling College, Yeah. Uh, a college in my part of the world, Australia, is, is a seminary, Nick, mm-hmm. and uh, we, we do everything um, from degrees to diplomas to PhDs, all fully accredited. Yeah. By the way, most of it you can do online as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we have a marvellous impact in Asia. Nick, did you know that Asia is Asia, where I spend a lot of my time, is less than ten percent Christian, and it's sixty percent of the world's population. Oh. All right. I figured it was very low. My wife has a deep love for nearly everything Japanese. She'd love to go to Japan someday, and yet less than 1% of the Japanese population is Christian. Yep. So less than 10% throughout Asia, 60% of the world's population. And when I say less than 10%, included in that 10% is every brand of Christian you can think of. And by the way, there are 2 billion people 20 years or under and the three largest mm-hmm. nations for that are all in Asia, China, India, and Indonesia. I've just got back from Indonesia. And so the world of youth is in Asia, and they're less than 10% Christian, I mean, in, in the youth category. So, so much to do. And, 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 and we train and equip many people from the Asian context, So mm-hmm. uh, ha- as well as Australians, of course, mm-hmm. and, and others. Yeah. So ha- have a look at the Mauling College um uh, website, you'll just get that when you Google, and you'll see more details about me on there as well. If mm. you're so inclined to yep. check me out, yep. Well, I certainly support that, especially since my wife, like I said, does have a love of Japan, and 
anything we can do to help reach the Japanese, we're very interested in it as well. Now, let's get back to the case of the resurrection. I mean, if there was any big objection that comes to the Gospels, it would be this. The Gospels contain miracles. Stories like that that contain miracles should not be accepted in a court of law. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting, Nick, because to establish a resurrection, all and, and, and let's put the miracle question on one side for a moment. Okay. And I'd look at this as a lawyer and as a skeptic. Remember, you know, I've got great doubt. Mm-hmm. And so to establish a resurrection, I had to remind myself as a lawyer, all I've got to establish is someone is dead at point A mm-hmm. and alive at point B. Yep. And if someone's dead at point A, beyond resuscitation, that's the key thing, beyond resuscitation and alive at point B, as a lawyer, I have to go with the facts. Now, in my book, I talk about one of the best-known Australian animals, if you want to call it that, creatures called the platypus. Mm-hmm. Nick, I don't know if you've ever seen a platypus. I uh, haven't, but I do understand it's a rarity. It, it's a mammal out there in every sense of the word, but it actually lays its eggs. And I think the spiny anteater is the only other one like that. Yeah, and so when the platypus was actually, well, what, what they did when the early colonisation of Australia, uh, <laughs> they came across a platypus. And so they skinned it and they sent it overseas to all the zoologists in Europe. And I talk about this in Leading Lawyers' Case for the Resurrection. I mean, you can look this up in any historical book. So they sent the, they sent the skin off to the zoologists. They said it's a fake. They said it's the first Australian hoax. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, these Australians having a go at us, as we say. I mean, this animal couldn't exist. It's mammal, it's reptile, it's furry, it lays eggs, doesn't exist. They've cut two skins, somehow put them together. Anyway, a little while later, uh, they found another platypus with the egg inside and an egg outside. They sent that platypus over to Europe and all the scientists and the zoologists who said the platypus couldn't exist because it was mammal and reptile and whatever, then became believers in the platypus. And, Nick, university students and whatever really get this story. So I'm saying, look, you have every entitlement to be sceptical. I'd expect you to be sceptical about an account of resurrection. Nothing wrong with that. Right. And I'd expect that you would require strong evidence. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Right. But I don't expect you to say such things could never happen. I expect you to be sceptical, honest and critical, but look at the evidence and if he's dead at point A and alive at point B, and that's the balance of probabilities or beyond a reasonable doubt, then I expect you to order your life according to the evidence. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, Nick, that, that, that's the way it is. And he is alive at point B. And he's alive in ways that are normal to the senses. I mean, although extraordinary things are happening with the resurrection, no question about that. But people are talking to him, touching him, eating with him, uh, you know, being, you know, in instruction with him. The kind of observations that take place in normal human encounter, Mm. normal human experience. That's the kind of evidence you have for him being alive at point B. Mm. Documented kind of evidence that you can record on. Now, 
Whether it's a miracle, and it is a miracle, obviously, that is secondary as to whether the event actually took place. And and, and I, I document in my doctor in my doctorate, uh, courts are skeptical of extraordinary evidence, unquestionably so. Mm-hmm. But extraordinary evidence cannot be ruled out mm-hmm. uh, absolutely. It means that the burden is particularly strong on those who want to establish it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I agree with that. I have absolutely no problem with that. And that's why I think God, in His grace, as we said earlier, has given me this extraordinary witness list that includes people who knew him prior to the event to answer the objection of oh, can't eyewitness evidence be unreliable? Uh, so they give me he gives me people who knew him prior to the event. He also gives me people who are sceptical about him to answer the question they're all biased. Yeah. He also gives me people that didn't know him to answer any objection, oh, well, they're all part of his little club. He gives me women who wouldn't be available in a court of law for a ring of truth. But he gives me, I mean, the evidence is just overwhelming. He gives me the best documents from antiquity, the best documents of any historical document. That's your New Testament. Yeah. He gives me that. He gives me Paul's eyewitness account, and it's basically beyond doubt that Paul wrote it in its early governments. So, mate, he's given me just absolutely overwhelming evidence that takes the extraordinary, extraordinary uh, account, extraordinary event, it takes it out of play. The evidence says he's alive. Yeah, but what someone says, well, I don't think the accounts can be that reliable because they do, in fact, contain so many miracles. I just have a problem with the miracles. Well, if you have a problem with the miracles as such in the Gospels, I'm simply saying that, you know, you and I might answer this differently. I'm simply saying there's still historical accounts, there's still reliable historical accounts, there's still bio of that day. That doesn't get you to exclude the resurrection account. Mm-hmm. But then if I want to answer the miracle along that line, I would say that that is only an objection, as the great English philosopher Swinburne says, if there's not a God who exists and yeah. not a God who exists who is personal. And if there's a God who exists who is personal, by the way, the majority of Australians, Nick, mm-hmm. uh, even though they don't go to church and even though only 6% say they're Christian, the majority of Australians aren't atheists or new atheists. majority of Australians pray and the majority of Australians still believe in a God out there. The majority of Australians are still chasing Oprah or new spirituality or something if yeah. they're not chasing Christianity. So yeah. in that context, yeah, yeah, I agree in such a God. You know, a great cricketer died in, in a sporting accident a couple of years ago and all of his teammates pointed their back to the heavens. All their teammates talk about him being with us and watching us play the game today. Mm. You know, they all believe he's up there in heaven. Mate, I heard that after the tragedy that took place and the absolute tragedy that has just mm. taken place mm. in the massacre in, in uh, Las Vegas. Yeah. I'm hearing all your commentators talking about, well, they're, they're in heaven now. I mean, you know, they're at rest. I mean, my gosh... You know, across our countries, mate, the majority of people believe in a God who is personal, even if they don't go to church. Well, if mm. you believe there's a God who is personal, as Swinburne says, then the evidence for the resurrection in Swinburne's mind, and he's one of the greatest philosophers today in a secular environment, that evidence for the resur- resurrection is just absolutely extraordinary, overwhelming, beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. And so if that God exists then the miracles themselves 
are no longer an issue because you would expect that God to, to act that way, particularly in the account of the most remarkable person in human history. Yeah. Now, you've been saying over and over about how the New Testament is the best document we have in the ancient world handed down. Yeah. Why, why should the skeptic in the court believe that? Why should you believe that? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, well I, I can show you that. I mean, to establish what you've got to do, Nick, as a lawyer, to establish whether good, uh, whether a document is trustworthy, you've got to establish uh, a couple of things. One is you've got to establish what is the date of the copy of the document you have, because none of us have any originals of anything. Mm-hmm. What's the date of the copy? Uh, uh, how close is that date to the original? And then you've also got to ask how many copies are there so you can cross-check them and see what different sources they come from mm-hmm. and see if they say roughly the same thing. So what's the date of the document and how many copies do you have? Well, in the New Testament, you can establish, you know, that you're starting to get copies from 140, 150 years of the original and you've got 5,000 Greek copies. Mm-hmm. When you go to the other ancient documents, Nick, you might have a handful of copies, literal handful of copies. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the date difference between the copy you've got and the original is a thousand years. Yeah. Or certainly be hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, if you want to look at what uh, happened with respect to uh, Pliny, we know Pliny the Younger from history, or Aristotle, or Homer, or Plato, or Caesar you've got a time span of hundreds of years and a handful of copies against what you've got in the New Testament is, you know, fragments appearing and whole documents with 140, 200 years and 5,000 copies. So you can cross-check the documents. And there's no doubt, Nick, that as you read your New Testament, as you read your New Testament, that 99% of what you read is as it was written. I'm talking as a lawyer. 99% 99% of what you read is as it was written. And basically, if there is that 1% out there, uh, we know what that 1% is, and it and it impacts, you know, mm-hmm. no central fact. Yeah. Um, and, and we, we know what 1%, you know, might be in question. Mm-hmm. You know, like, does Mark's gospel end at verse 8, or is there a longer ending? Mm-hmm. Well, if it ends at verse 8, or there's a longer ending, doesn't impact the story of the resurrection because in the first eight verses, the tomb's empty, mate. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Yeah. If you're going to throw the Gospels out, mate, you're going to throw out the whole of human history. Yeah. And if someone wants a bit more information on the textual reliability of the New Testament, go back to our archives. April 19th, 2014, we interviewed Daniel Wallace on this topic, and there's hardly anyone better at it than Daniel Wallace is. Yeah. So, as we're getting to a always important, say, someone out there saying, you know what, I'm still skeptical, but I'm at least open. How would you suggest I begin looking at the resurrection of Jesus? I would say one of the first things to do, and this might surprise the listeners, uh, I'd, I'd take you back to the text. I'm a mm-hmm. lawyer. Yep. So I want to go back to the primary material. I want to go back to the primary material. Focus there initially. Go back to the text and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of the probably the earliest writing of the resurrection, knowing it is Paul 
knowing it's early, knowing it's not corrupted, knowing that's basically universally accepted by a believer and sceptic alike. And read what he says in the first 10 or 12 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Then go back and read uh, John's Gospel. And in particular, read the last few chapters from 19 on of the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus. Read John's Gospel. Get that under your belt. Then I'd go and read Luke's Gospel. And then if you start to get some questions about some of the issues that we've been talking about, you say, yeah, okay, I really want to dig a bit deeper. Then, you know, if I can be so bold, I would get hold of my book, Leading Lawyers, Case for the Resurrection. Look at that and, and see how I pull together authorship, uh, reliability of the text, how it's been handed down. Um, I look at famous lawyers through that process. Uh, I look at the external evidence and history for the resurrection and death of Jesus. I also make the answer the questions, well, so what? What difference does it make to my life if it actually took place? Uh -huh. And through a guy, a guy called Sir Norman Anderson, one of the greatest lawyers, I actually asked then in the end, what's the evidence for being dead and alive? Uh, what's the evidence for that with respect to Jesus? And, mate, I finished with Sir Lionel Lucku who was the world's greatest lawyer, according to the Guinness, the Guinness Book of Records, mate. He won over 200 murder cases in a row. I met mm. the guy. He launched the book, and at 63, he looked at the evidence for himself and became a Christian. Knighted twice by the Queen, 200 cases in a row, murder cases he yep. won. And then he said the evidence for the resurrection is so overwhelming and strong, he became a believer. Mm -hmm. Well, Ross, I'd like to thank you. Come on, we can... To the end of our time together, do you have a blog, a website, an email, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yeah, look, um, they can simply go to that Morling College uh, website and they'll see their inquiries there and they can contact me there. Or alternatively, they can just uh, email me personally, Nick, and uh, my personal email is rosscc, C for Clifford, rosscc at Morling, M-O-R-L-I-N-G dot E-D-U dot A-U and uh, we'll get back to you as soon as we can particularly if it's apologetic kind of questions because mate, that's why you and I exist mm -hmm. because yep. we know what it is to doubt we know what it is to be confused and we know what it is to walk in the light mm -hmm. now, Do you have any final words you have to leave for Deeper Waters audience today? This question about whether Jesus arose is the most important question in human history it's the most dangerous idea because if he rose it changes everything it changes human history it changes god's talk into our lives it, it's it, it's the biggie mate it's the question we all have to look at and i just thank god the evidence is overwhelming mm -hmm. well ross i'd like to thank you for coming on and hopefully we'll see you back again sometime love to nick really good to be with you mate i can mind everyone next week we're going to have clay jones on talking about his book, Why Does God Allow Evil? For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>